Let me ask you a, a question to start here. I want you to answer this question just to yourself here. Where you believe you're going when you die. All right? Just to yourself, do you know where you're going when you die? And, and why do you believe that, of course? Does that bring some anxiety to you today or even uncertainty, perhaps? Is that something you don't like to think about, perhaps? Let me ask you this. Let me extend this a little bit further. If you believe you're going to heaven today, which I hope the answer is yes. If you believe you're going to heaven today and you were to stand before God in that day and you were to say, why should I let you into heaven? What would you say? Don't I say that out loud just to yourself? How would you respond to that? Because there's a lot riding on that answer that you give. Your whole eternity is riding on that. So it's important to know why you believe or what you believe and why you believe that. And there is only one correct answer that you can give. Now, I don't ask that to put you into a fit of anxiety here this morning. I don't want to cause any panic attacks here. But I ask that so that we can be those that have a understanding of what we believe. Because again, like I say, you know, our eternity is riding on that. But it's good to know these things and why you know it. And, and, and today, and the reason I ask those things is because today as we go into John chapter 3, we get to be invited into a, a really neat thing going on. We get to be invited into a conversation that Jesus has with somebody that's coming to Jesus really with those kinds of questions in mind. And Jesus begins to direct this conversation into those spiritual and eternal matters. What causes a person to go to heaven? And we get to hear from Jesus himself how a person goes to heaven. There was a Sunday school teacher that was spending some time with some young kids talking to them about heaven and, and how a person goes to heaven and was really laying it all out there. And kids were getting excited. So it was kind of finishing up and said, so kids, where are you all going? And they all yelled out, heaven. And the Teacher says again, and what do you need to be to get there? Dead, one boy replied. <clears throat> and, well, although that might be partly true, we get to fill that in a little bit more here today in John chapter 3. All right? Here's what we're going to be looking at as we go through just, Lord willing, these first 15 verses. We're going to see the seeker. We're going to see the struggle that he had on these things, the solution that Jesus lays out, but more so the salvation, the salvation that's available for us to indeed go to heaven. Here's what we read in verse one. It says, there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. And this man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher come from God for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with them. Now, we saw in John chapter 2, the first sign that Jesus did, right? Turning water to wine. Well, now this Pharisee, Nicodemus, comes to Jesus and he's realizing, Lord, Jesus, we see the things that you're doing. We see the signs that you're doing. There's, there's inevitably more things that are beginning to unfold in Jesus' ministry. Remember, John says that, man, all the volumes that we could write and all the libraries could not contain everything that Jesus did. So we're just getting a little snippet of the things that Jesus did. And so this man, Nicodemus, comes to Jesus. And there's some 
issues that he's kind of grappling with, it seems, in his own heart. He's wanting to know more about Jesus. He's wanting to understand Jesus. Now, let's first of all, understand a little bit more about this man, Nicodemus. Because like it says there for us, he's a Pharisee. Now, we're going to encounter a lot about the Pharisees as we go through the Gospels. Now, what is a Pharisee? A Pharisee was a man, a person that had really just kind of committed their life, devoted their life to upholding God's law. Okay? And they would take an oath basically in front of three witnesses to say that for all of my life, I'm going to be committed to knowing God's law and to upholding it. They just kept it to the very letter. And there were 613 commandments from the Mosaic law that there was. 248 that were good 365 that were negative commandments like don't do this right so 613 commandments and so what the pharisees even began to do is that they began to make commandments for the commandments to make sure that they weren't breaking any of those commandments i mean they just built their life around this kind of legalistic living to say we want to be sure that we're upholding god's law but the problem was is that it became very external for the pharisees in fact, it's the Pharisees that really become, you know, the antagonists of Jesus's ministry. They're the ones that oftentimes created that kind of opposition against the things that Jesus was doing because Jesus came in and he was kind of breaking the, the traditions that they felt we need to uphold to keep God's law. Not that Jesus was breaking the law, but, you know, he was doing things in a way that they felt, oh, this is violating our own idea of how we need to keep the law. Now, here's some things that the Pharisees did. They wanted to be sure that they weren't breaking in the commands. And so they would again begin to lay out all these things that they needed to do in order not to break the commandments or be in violation of any of that. One of those things was in order to keep the Sabbath day, the, the you know, Ten Commandments says to keep the Sabbath day holy, you shall do no work on it. So they began to think, okay, well, we don't want to break that, but what is work exactly? What, what constitutes doing work on the Sabbath? And so they would begin to lay out all these different rules and things that they said, this is what doing work is and this is what's not doing work. So here's how the Pharisees would begin to operate. They would say, well, for instance, if you were to tie a knot, tying a knot would be work. And so if you wanted to go and get water from a well, you'd usually tie a rope to the bucket and, and lower it down. Well, we can't do that now on the Sabbath because we can't tie a knot. That would be work. But a woman was able to tie a, a knot in her garments, in her clothing that she was wearing. So the Pharisees thought, ah, hmm, well, let's see if we take a woman with us to the well, we can tie a knot with her clothing in the bucket and lower it down to get water. So that won't constitute work. They'd have their ways of getting around it. That's kind of how the Pharisees began to operate and think, you see. And so these are the people that are oftentimes coming against Jesus here. Because they were living with such an outward, outward, you know, external view of the law without realizing that God's really more interested in the heart, right? But now as we talk about Pharisees, not all the Pharisees were bad or, or, or wicked or, or hypocritical as Jesus sometimes called them. They were hypocritical. Not all of them were like that. Nicodemus, for instance, Here's a man that is an important man. He's a Pharisee, but he's seeking Jesus. He wants to know Jesus more. And all through the book of John, we're going to encounter Nicodemus three different times. Here in chapter three, we're going to encounter him in chapter, uh, chapter seven, where he's actually defending Jesus against 
You know, and, and in the midst of all the other Pharisees, he's defending Jesus. In John chapter 19, we're going to see that Nicodemus comes alongside Joseph of Arimathea to bury Jesus, to give him a proper burial. So it seems that Nicodemus progressed in this kind of discipleship and understanding of Jesus to where he became a follower of Jesus, where he was with him, committed to him, even at his death. So it's pretty cool that not all Pharisees were just in and of themselves, wicked or evil or hypocritical, Nicodemus stands out here. Now, here's how he also stands out, because Jesus tells us that he's a ruler of the Jews, or John tells us he's a ruler of the Jews. So not only is he a Pharisee, but now he has even a more specific role in that many would believe is speaking of the Sanhedrin. The Sanhedrin, you see, was a council of people that was made up of 71 men that brought kind of that religious oversight, and counsel to all of Israel. They didn't have any legal bounds for governing because Rome was in charge at this time. But the Sanhedrin, you see, was a group of 71 member council that held jurisdiction of religious matters over the Jews. So this man's an important man. He's an important man. And Jesus in verse 10 will even say that, aren't you not the teacher of Israel, but the teacher of Israel? He was prominent in his teaching and his ability. This man, Nicodemus, was a man that stood out. He's not just kind of like new to all this Pharisee stuff. He's not just kind of some guy. Like he's an important man that's coming to Jesus. But he's seeking Jesus because of a couple things. He knows that something's still not right. This man's been devoted to upholding God's law. He's been living this life in a way that you would think, if anybody's going to heaven, it's that guy. But yet there's still something missing for him. And he's seeking Jesus. Now, John tells us that he came at night. Now, what's the reason for that? It's not just to give pastors a great line and saying, here it is, Nick at night, right? For all you people that remember Nick at night on TV. Some of you, nobody, anybody. Pastors love to use that, Nick at night. Here it is, Nicodemus. Coming at night, okay, it's lame, I understand. That's why I wasn't going to use it. I said, that's what a lot of people love to do. But why did he come at night? Now, there's a few ideas. We're not certain exactly, because it's not recorded for us exactly why. There's a few thoughts as to why perhaps Nicodemus came at night. First of all, because it was maybe the only time that he could really get some alone time with Jesus. During the day, Jesus is out ministering. Crowds are probably coming around Jesus. It'd be hard to get to Jesus. A lot of distractions in business at nighttime. All that's time, everybody's kind of gone home. They've gone their, their own way. And, and now this is some alone time that you could have. I think that's important for us to realize how important it is to have that one-on-one time with Jesus. Thankfully, we don't need to schedule in time with Jesus or find a time when he's not busy. More so, it's finding time when we can come before Jesus apart from all of our distractions, apart from the busyness of our day, finding that time, whether it's early in the morning, whether it's in the evening time, but to say, Jesus, I want to take some time with you. When I can just hear from you, meet with you, apart from all the distractions. Well, Nicodemus is doing that. Secondly, it's possible that he came to Jesus at night because he wanted to do so secretly. He's a part of a 71-member council made up of very important people in Israel, that had a lot of problems with Jesus. He's a Pharisee. Many of the Pharisees, and there were, there were about 6,000 Pharisees in the time of Jesus' day. Many of them had problems with Jesus. So it's perhaps that Nicodemus was coming in secret where he didn't want all of his pals. 
his peers to know that he's actually meeting with Jesus to kind of investigate and learn more about Jesus. So he's coming at night when perhaps others aren't going to know about it. Thirdly, it could be that this just really reveals a great picture for us because here's Nicodemus coming in darkness, which is where all of us are at before meeting Jesus, before receiving Jesus. We're in a place of darkness. And it's only until we come and receive Jesus that we move from darkness into light because Jesus is, as John 8 will tell us, the light of the world. That's a condition that we're all in. We're walking in darkness and we're dead because of sin and we need to have the light of Jesus shine in. So perhaps this is a great picture for all of us to see again our need for Jesus, that we're in darkness. And here's Nicodemus coming at night here. So he comes to Jesus and he's, he's realizing, you know, we know that you're a teacher that's come from God. For no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with them. There's something different about Jesus. There's something standing out with Jesus that's, that's kind of captivated Nicodemus here. And he's wanting to find out about that. But now look at how Jesus responds. We see the seeker. Let's kind of see the, the struggle now that's going on here. It says in verse 3 that Jesus answered... And said to him, most assuredly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. And Nicodemus said to him, how can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? So here we begin to see the struggle. But what's interesting is that Jesus gives a perplexing reply to Nicodemus. Because it's as though he's answering a question that nobody's asking. Right? It's like he says, listen, Nicodemus, assuredly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus hasn't been saying anything about the kingdom of God. But remember what we read at the end of John chapter 2? Jesus knew what was in man. He knows the very heart of man. He knows the very motive. He knows everything about you before you even lay it out before him. So it would seem that Nicodemus is having an issue about Jesus. If you're, the, if you're the man, the Messiah, the one that we're looking for and waiting for, if, if you're the guy, well, shouldn't you be kind of cooperating with us, working with us, coming to us? Because we're the Pharisees. We're the ones that have been upholding God's word. We're waiting the kingdom. We're waiting for the Messiah, but shouldn't you be coming and working with us here? Shouldn't we be the ones that are kind of getting that fast track to the kingdom? Jesus says, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. You see, what Jesus is saying is that nobody comes into the kingdom of God. Nobody comes into heaven apart from being born again. And what that really implies is being born from above. Or you could say it's having a a new birth, a, a spiritual birth, being born again. No one can come into that fullness of life, that eternal life, apart from being born again or born above. And Nicodemus struggled with this. It posed a problem for him, right? He's like, wait a second. This doesn't make sense because Nicodemus is only looking and thinking on a physical, natural level, not a spiritual level. Do we ever do that? 
Do we ever struggle to understand what God's doing because we're only looking at things on a natural or physical level? Failing to see what God is often doing in the spiritual or behind the scenes and things in ways that we don't see or comprehend? Nicodemus is doing just that. So he asked, how is this possible? Being born is hard enough when you come out just eight pounds, let alone 180 pounds. Going back into your mother's womb and being born again, I don't think that's going to work. This is a struggle for Nicodemus. This is posing a bit of a problem, as you can imagine. It all seemed very foolish to Nicodemus. So Jesus, in his grace, begins to explain that a little more. And he shows us how this all works. He begins to lay out really the solution here. Look at verse 5. And it says, Jesus answered, Most assuredly I say to you, unless one is born of water and the spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the spirit is spirit. So what does it mean, as Jesus tries to break this down and make this very clear to Nicodemus, what does it mean to be born of water and spirit? Because Nicodemus at this point, still is, I'm sure, trying to figure this all out. But what does Jesus mean? Well, there's been many suggestions made, again, as to what is being implied regarding water and spirit. Let's try to break down some of these things for us here. And First of all, many say that the water speaks of baptism. That a person, you know, puts their faith in Jesus and then follows it up with getting baptized in water. It's kind of the obedient thing to do. But that doesn't fit with the rest of Scripture because we understand that No person needs to be baptized to enter into the kingdom of God or into heaven. The thief on the cross is a great illustration of that. When Jesus says, today you'll be with me in paradise. Jesus didn't have to say, ah, dude, man, I'm really sorry, but we're just not going to have any time to get you baptized. So I don't think this is going to work out. Baptism is not a requirement for salvation. So that doesn't seem to really fit. Some people believe that it's speaking of the natural birth because When a woman goes into labor, right, there's the breaking of water. The the child comes out with all the, you know, amniotic fluid. It's flowing. It's really quite a mess, right? I've got a birthing video I thought I'd just show you here uh, just to make that really crystal clear. No, I won't do that. It's just of my first. No, it's not of my first. That would be just wrong. So um, now that does indeed think about this. That that does seem to kind of fit indeed that. If a person is going to be born again, they need to be born first, naturally, physically. A person can't be born again if they haven't been born already before, right? So that can kind of fit. We get the idea that that the concept, but that again, doesn't really seem to be what John has in mind here. Thirdly, water could imply the baptism that John the Baptist was involved in prior to Jesus' ministry, because what he was doing was he was preparing people's hearts. His baptism was a baptism of repentance. It was a preparatory work, preparing people for the work of Jesus, right? And so again, it could imply that, well, if we're going to be born again, we need to come in that heart of repentance, receiving, ready to receive this work that Jesus has done for us. And that certainly could, could fit, no doubt. Another idea is that water might simply be meaning the spirit. And it would kind of be weird that it's, it's repeating itself like that. If water means spirit, then it's kind of saying, you know, that unless a person is um, born of the spirit and the spirit. But 
You see how that can more rightly be translated in that verse is that word and could also be translated even. In other words, that verse could then read, unless one is born of water, even the spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. Remember in, in, in well, in next in a couple of weeks, we'll get to John chapter four and we'll see Jesus with that woman at the well and he's trying to draw her into understanding what she really needs. And Jesus is saying, if you will, you know, receive what I have for you out of your heart will flow rivers of living water. That work of the spirit. In John seven, we're gonna see how Jesus stood up in that great day of the feast and he said, you know, if anyone desires to come, um, you know, again, out of their heart will flow rivers of living water. And John says, and this he spoke regarding the Spirit. So there's a, a connection there, a tie-in, no doubt about it. And it, it could be that's what John has in mind. Here's the last one that has some merit to it, no doubt, that water also has reference in scripture to the word of God. Remember what Jesus said in John 15, 3, you are already clean because of the word which I have spoken to you. Ephesians 5, husbands are called to, to you know, uh, love their wives and to um, just teach them, wash them, cleanse them through the water of the word. You see, when we see Christ's words in this light, we see that God is here pictured as the divine begetter, the father of his spiritual children. And we learn that the written word of God together with the working of the Holy Spirit is the means by which the, the new birth is accomplished. This is why the Bible tells us that it pleased God to save people by the foolishness of preaching for people are reborn through the efforts of others who proclaim God's word. Look at what 1 Peter 1.23 says, having been born again, not a corruptible seed, but incorruptible through the word of God, which lives and abides forever. Romans ten seventeen. that faith comes by hearing and hearing by the what? Word of God. <clears throat> this is the means by which people are going to respond to the Spirit's work to receive the truth of the gospel. And so just like a child can't be born unless there's two people at work, right? It takes a, a man and a woman to produce a child. At least last time I checked, that's how it worked. I don't know if things have changed since then and what kind of new science is going on out there, but that's the way it's usually worked. It takes two people just as now for the new birth. It takes the water of the word and the spirit of God, bringing these two together to make the person alive inside. This is where I would kind of lean towards this water and the spirit representing and meaning it. It could be uh, different ones that we've looked at here. And that's okay. If you want to be right, you will side with me. No, I don't, I don't know who's right or not, but I'm just teasing you. So there's some ideas as to what this implies here, but we see this work of the spirit now coming and just pouring in to the life here. You see... What Jesus is getting at with Nicodemus is that to be fit for the kingdom, to be a child of God, it, it takes a work of regeneration. That's from the inside. And it's a work that God does. You see, religion seeks to turn over a new leaf. Regeneration transforms life and brings forth fruit. Religion is man's effort to reach God. Regeneration is God's ability to come and reach man. Religion says, keep working and striving outwardly. Whereas regeneration says, the work is completed internally. It says, 
as we receive the gospel and the truth that God's word and the spirit begins to make that an, an effectual work inside and he breathes life into us. God comes and he imparts new life by the spiritual birth that takes place from above. You see, you just can't clean up the flesh, guys. And it's a way that so many people are relying on and hoping for to go to heaven. Well, I'm just going to really try my hardest. I'm going to really try to reform the flesh. I'm going to do my best. But listen, you can take a, a dead person. You can put a nice suit on that person or a nice dress. You can put on makeup. You can try to make this person look so good. But guess what you got at the end? You still got a dead corpse. There's nothing you can do to, to reform externally in a way that's going to provide life. The Bible says in Ephesians 2 that, that we were dead in sin and trespasses. But God, who is rich in mercy, made us, what? Alive. We can't make ourselves come alive. We can't do the work. Only God can do that. And that's what it takes to be born again. It's receiving this work that God has given to us freely. It's by, by grace through faith. That you are saved. Not of yourselves. It's not of works. It's through faith. It's by his grace that he comes and he breathes in that new life for us. This is why Jesus says here to Nicodemus that that which is born of the flesh is flesh. He's saying you can't do anything to change that, make it better, to reform it. You can't work on that level of saying, well, I'm going to heaven because look at all these things I'm doing for charity. Look at all these things I'm doing to help other people. Look at how I'm going to church regularly. Those are all things on an outward level. That which is born of the flesh is flesh. You can't do anything to reform it or change it or make it kingdom worthy. It doesn't aid in salvation. You need a new birth. And God doesn't just want you to clean yourself up. He wants to make you brand new. And we have to realize and remind ourselves that we can't do anything to enter into the kingdom of God. There's not enough rules you can keep or you can't attend enough services. You can't give enough money. You can't help enough people. You can't memorize enough verses. None of those things contribute to you going to heaven. See, you didn't do anything to be born physically, did you? Did you aid in that? Did you say, hey, mom and dad, I know I'm just a thought right now, but let's get together. Let's make some life happen here. It didn't have anything to do with it. And just as we didn't do anything to be born physically, we don't do anything to be born spiritually. Except, may I just say, to simply put your faith in Jesus. Put your faith in Jesus. It's a sovereign work of God's spirit. Jesus is going to break this down a bit more for us. Look at verse 7. He says to Nicodemus, Do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear the sound of it, but cannot tell where it comes from and where it goes. So is everyone who is born of the spirit. I'm sure Nicodemus, at this point, he's just sitting here, you know, Mouth is just wide open. Chin is just hanging on the ground right now. He's just like, this is just like blowing his mind. He's saying, Nicodemus, don't marvel at this. Don't be so shocked 
And you can bet that Nicodemus was in utter shock because he's having his whole, his whole belief system just shattered right now. Because like we said earlier, he would have thought if anyone was fit for the kingdom, it would be him. Right? A Pharisee, keeper of the law, completely obedient to the word, to the very letter of the law, sitting on an exclusive council, presiding over spiritual matters for the whole nation, a respected rabbi. If anybody was fit for the kingdom, it was Nicodemus. If you're basing it on externals. There's many that are sitting in that same place as Nicodemus, thinking that their belief system is going to count them as worthy in that day that they stand before God. And their belief system oftentimes defaults to this. Be a good person, do good things. Be a good person, do good things. That's what's going to cause me to be worthy of heaven. And they're missing it. They're missing it because we can't do anything to save ourselves and to be fit for the kingdom. We don't aid in our going to heaven. See, people like this idea because it's something tangible for them. I understand, I get it. It's like they want to be able to know I'm going to heaven because I have a gauge now. I'm doing all these things. I'm working for it. I can look at this person over there and go, oh man, I'm doing a lot more than they are. So if anybody's going to miss heaven, it'd be them and not me, right? We have a gauge then. We, we, we have something tangible before us. I, I get it. And for people to think, if it's just an, a work of God, it's just the spirit coming in and making me laugh. How do I really know? What's the gauge? What's the tangible reality for that? How do I know if I'm really born again? Well, Jesus gives an illustration from nature, right? He says, the wind blows wherever and however it wishes. You hear the sound of it, but you don't, you don't know where it comes from or where it goes. But what Jesus is getting at is that you see the effects of it. You hear it. You see things moving because of it. And the spirit is the same way. He does what he wants and how he wants. We don't see the spirit, but we certainly see the effects of the Spirit. And it's an interesting play on words that Jesus is giving here because the word wind and the word spirit in the Greek is the same word, pneuma. It's the same word. The pneuma spirit and the pneuma wind are both working in ways that we don't see or control, but you trust that they're working because you see their effects. So how do you know that you're born again? It's the effect of the Spirit. The tangible evidence here is a new nature. The evil things you once loved, you now hate. The things of God that you maybe once despised, you now love and have a passion for. There's a change that's beyond you. Suddenly you're reading the Bible and it's making sense. You're like, oh my goodness, how did I miss this all along? This is incredible. Suddenly there's a different change, a different nature at work in you. And many of you can attest to that of looking back as to how you were before you put your trust in Jesus. And then when you put your trust in Jesus, for some of you, it may have been a slow progression for some of you. It was instant where suddenly there was change. Your language cleaned up. The habits that you had changed. The desires you had changed. Because that's the work of the Spirit. You realize, I'm born again. There's something different going on. There's a different effect now. And that's the effect of the Spirit. 
So Jesus lays out the whole solution here. It's got to be born of wind or born of the water and the spirit. Receiving the truth of the gospel, allowing the spirit to transform you. But Jesus breaks this down even a little bit more because we're going to see Nicodemus still is struggling a little bit here. He breaks this down all the more to really reveal to us the salvation that we have. Look at verse 9. Nicodemus answered and said to him, how can these things be? Jesus answered and said to him, are you the teacher of Israel and do not know these things? Most assuredly, I say to you, we speak what we know and testify what we have seen and you do not receive our witness. So Nicodemus is still a little bit flabbergasted at all this born again talk. How can this be? He says, I'm not getting this, Jesus. Ever been there? Yeah, we've all been there. It's okay. And Jesus is, he's kind of like a little bit surprised that Nicodemus doesn't get this. And, and understand, I shouldn't say surprised because nothing surprises Jesus. He knows. But what he's doing is he's kind of challenging Nicodemus for not knowing the scriptures that he spent so much time learning and living out. This is all right there for him. Especially since Nicodemus was such a respected teacher in Israel. You see, all he had to do was look at a few select verses in the Old Testament to realize that this has always been the plan of God to create in a person a new nature, a new work that would come by the Spirit. This is not hidden from them. Look at what we read in Ezekiel 36, verse 26 to 27. God says, I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit within you. I will take the heart of stone out of your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And I'll put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and you'll keep my judgments and do them. God says, I know that you can't live up to the law. The law just simply reveals that you're a sinner in need of greater work. God says, I'm going to do that greater work for you. I'm going to give you my spirit. And it's going to take that heart of stone that's hardened over these things and it's going to give you a heart of flesh that's going to beat for the things of God. I'm going to put my spirit in you and bring about a new nature. Now those things may have been hard for Nicodemus to understand, but Jesus stands as a witness now that these things are true. The whole Godhead is involved as a witness. These things are not a fantasy. It's a reality for them. The whole Godhead is speaking as a witness of what they've seen and known, Jesus says. We speak what we know in verse 11. And, and, and testify what we've seen. The problem is you, you don't receive our witness. We've laid it all out there for you. And he says in verse 12, If I've told you earthly things and you do not believe, how will you believe if I tell you heavenly things? No one has ascended to heaven, but he who came down from heaven, that is the Son of Man who is in heaven. See, if Nicodemus couldn't understand matters of, of heaven and regeneration through earthly analogies as Jesus is trying to lay out, make this very comprehensible to him? How could then Nicodemus understand and believe matters of heavenly things, spiritual things like, like faith and grace, the very means by which a person receives salvation? Jesus is like, if you don't get the easy part, how are you going to get the more complex things? Jesus can speak authoritatively and clearly on these things because he was the only one that was in heaven. He's not merely a teacher sent by God. He's God come to teach. To reveal these truths for us. To live them out. And Jesus is laying out as clear as possible for Nicodemus and to us to understand that this regeneration is supplied when we look to the right source. 
And that's what he does now. He says, let me give you an, an, an example, an illustration from your history to show you what I've come to do. It's taken from Numbers chapter 21. And here's what we read in, in our text here, verses 14 to 15. Jesus says, listen, as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. So Jesus is drawing Nicodemus to a familiar story to them from the Old Testament. When the Israelites were traveling through the wilderness, God was providing for them, God was being good, but they began to grumble and complain. They're like, oh, we're tired of eating all this manna. We're tired of all, we want something more. And they began to grumble and complain and, and God basically kind of sent a, a plague against them. Fiery servants began to come and, and Moses interceded. And as he interceded, he was given a remedy. Moses is told, make a bronze serpent, put it on a pole, and tell the people afflicted with this poison to look at the serpent. Numbers 21.9 says, So Moses made a bronze serpent, put it on a pole. And so it was, if a serpent had bitten anyone, when he looked at the bronze serpent, he lived. Now, no doubt, put, your, put yourself in the sandals of those people in Israel who are poisoned by these snakes and they're told, look to the bronze serpent held up on a pole. Look to that. How many people, how many of you would have sat there and thought, what's that going to do? That doesn't make sense. How is looking at an inanimate object going to help me? How is that going to provide my healing for me? It doesn't make sense. Listen, in the same way as these Israelites were, we're a people that have been poisoned by sin. Every one of us. And there's only one cure. To look to Jesus who was lifted up on a cross and he took the judgment for us. And you know why it was a bronze serpent? Because bronze biblically is a symbol of judgment. That was a picture of what Jesus would do as that was held up on the, on the, the pole that would have held their, their banners representing each tribe. Probably the shape of a cross with that bronze serpent on there. It was a picture of what Jesus would do as he would be lifted up on a cross and he would take the judgment of God for all of our sin. The very wrath of God was poured out upon Jesus so that we could be spared from the wrath of God and the judgment of God. Jesus took that death blow for us and was able to remove the poison of sin that was at work in us that had put us in a place of darkness and death. Jesus took all that for us so that we could be cleansed and forgiven. And all we need to do to be cleansed and forgiven is to look to Jesus in faith and in trust that what he's done and provided for us is what I need to be cleansed, forgiven, and to be born again. He's done it all. He's done it all for us. Being born again is not a, a complex jumping through a bunch of hoops 
kind of a thing is we've seen the comparison between religion and regeneration. God's done it all. He's allowed his spirit to blow in and impart new life to us. The question today for us, and I'm going to invite the worship team to come up and we're going to just close with a song here this morning. The question for us is this. Are you born again? Are you trusting external efforts to make you right with God? Because understand this, nothing we do can improve upon what Jesus has done for us. And secondly then, if you are born again, what is the evidence that you are? What are the tangible things that are going on in your life to show I'm born again? Is there fruit that's being born? Because it's all a work of faith, but it's a faith that works. It's going to be demonstrated in how you live. And we're not trying to put on again. I'm not trying to say, you need to live in a way that... No, it's just going to be natural. Just like a branch doesn't have to sit there and try to push out fruit. I'm going to make this happen. A branch just has to be connected to the tree. And so too for us. We just need to be those that are abiding in Jesus, trusting Jesus. John 5, 11, 12 says, and this is the testimony that God has given us eternal life and this life is in his son. He who has the son has life. He who does not have the son of God does not have life. It's as simple as that. Are you in the son today? Have you put your faith in Jesus today? If you have, then he's poured his spirit into you. You're born again. And if you're sitting here today going, I just don't see the evidence of that, then you need to ask, have I really yielded to Jesus? Have I really put my faith in him? Because it's going to be a natural thing that's going to happen. Evidence of being born again. And I pray that that will be said of all of us. If you're here today and you're still going, I don't know. I don't think I've ever done that. I don't, I don't know if I'm born again. It's as simple as just simply saying, Jesus, I confess I'm a sinner and I need you. I want the life you have given to me. Come in and be my savior. That's all you have to do is pray a simple prayer like that. Just of acknowledging your need for Jesus. And when you do, he comes into your life. He transforms you from the inside out. You become a child of God. It's the work that he does. And I encourage you, don't put that off. If you're here today and you haven't done that, don't put that off any longer. You don't know. It's too late when you breathe your last and you stand before God. It's too late at that point. He wants you to make that confession and acknowledgement while you have breath. Do that. Be born again. And know the blessing that comes living in Jesus. Let's stand together today. Let's just sing this song in response to what the Lord is saying to us here today through his word and just sing the song and I'll come up and close in prayer.